Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we are joined by Jocelyn Connolly, a.k.a. The Vagina Doc. She's a pelvic floor physical therapist in Scottsdale, Arizona. She's the owner of the Vagina Doc Physical Therapy and Wellness, a concierge physical therapy practice that offers in-person rehab, online consulting, and fitness programming. Jocelyn has dedicated her professional career to revolutionizing the delivery of women's health care by providing top-notch clinical care, community education, and collaboration opportunities with others in the health and wellness space. As a lifelong athlete, herself with pelvic floor dysfunction, she understands the unique needs of other highly active women. She understands the frustration of hearing advice that is well-intentioned but misguided from incomplete understanding on female biomechanics and physiology. She believes in creating new ways for female athletes to participate in their sport or activity rather than giving the advice to just stop doing insert activity here. She is the host of the podcast Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs, a podcast that talks about taboo topics surrounding women's health. You can learn more by visiting her website or by joining the private Facebook group, Pelvic Floor Support Group for Female Athletes and Active Women. Jocelyn, we're so pumped to have you on today to talk all about vaginas. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here today. So um, before we start talking about like anatomy and just like pelvic floor dysfunction and all sorts of like really interesting stuff, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and like what brought you to the space of working with pelvic floor? Yeah, sure. I'll try to be as streamlined as I can with this. But uh, when I was, Danielle and I went to the same school at WashU in St. Louis, Washington University in St. Louis, and we were exposed to pelvic health pretty early on first year, first semester. And I remember sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, everything in my life now makes sense (laughs) as a female athlete and as a sexual being and as 
a person with a pelvic floor that just felt understood, misunderstood and just like an oddball. So uh, from that point forward, I remember say, listening on really closely. So before the show, Danielle was saying, well, how could we get people to realize that they need to pay attention to this unit in PT school? Well, uh, I listened really closely because I realized that there, I mean, this was what was missing in my rehab after I tore my ACL. This was missing in my interactions with with all of my healthcare providers. And this is what was what was holding me back as a sexual being. So I listened really close, but I remember saying to myself, there's no way anyone is going to come and do an internal exam on me, and nor am I doing it to someone else right now, because that was a prerequisite of getting into it in the first place. But then, uh, so I was like, well, that sucks, maybe one day. And then we got into site selection day, which is the day that we get, it's a ra like a lottery of, of the number or the order you are in to pick your site selections for uh, student internships or uh, what do we call them? Clinicals. Uh, the clinicals. Mm -hmm. And I had solidified a site in Washington and because, because I had already solidified a site before that, I was, I wouldn't get a first pick should I pick last. So I pick my, I pick my, my first go and I pick 82. I think there's 82 people in my class at the time. And so since I was last, that would mean I should pick first the next round. But because I had a site, I couldn't. So I had 82 and then the next time I picked, it was last again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was like, oh my gosh, the universe is talking to me right now. So whatever you choose, you better just go with it and believe that there's a reason for this. So I ultimately selected, I, there was very few ch choices for CE2, which was the second rotation. And I just had a gut feeling about this site that was near Iowa State. So I went to Penn State for college and there was a familiarity about Penn State and Iowa State with it being the Big Ten and it just being that type of campus, like town that it was rooted around the, the campus. I'm like, I'll just go there. And so I couldn't find anywhere to live and a third year, I was a, or a, the, a guy in the class above me connected with me, his friend who we played hockey with at Iowa State, and he's like, you could see if you could live with him. And well, that was that was the case. We connected, and um, of course, him and I had fallen in love, <laughs> blind roommates while I was there. And uh, I had been. This was the first guy that I had allowed myself to even be around in a, in a place, in a space to live, let alone, and, and then intimately. I had been in a, in a situation in college my first year where I was living at, I was living somewhere and I was being recorded without me knowing in my bedroom. And so it was a private space this was, I was, I think I was 18 or 19. No, no, I was, I, was eight, I was 19 at the time. And when I found out, I think like something happened that I, I, just, I just went off the deep end, kind of. And when we talk about traumatic sexual experiences in our training, 
it doesn't have to be a physical traumatic experience. It can be like you're a kid and you're forced to watch someone jack off. Mm-hmm. Or it could be something like what I experienced. Like, I don't know if you guys remember Aaron Andrews, who was recorded in our hotel room, sexual mm-hmm. experience, traumatic sexual experience. So at that point forward, I kind of, when I was in college, I kind of went off the deep end. Then I numbed it all. And then there was a point, okay, so sex pre this was fine. It was, it was good, not painful, not like it was after. So there was a point that I just couldn't, I was having intercourse and it was painful. It was not pleasurable to say the least. It wasn't a pain that I welcomed. And then I just couldn't have sex at all. And I didn't trust, at that point, I didn't, I I was just like, what's wrong with me? I didn't want to, I didn't even want to date because I was so embarrassed and just, I was so, like my self-worth was at an all-time low. And then uh, I didn't trust anyone. Every time I went into the bathroom, any bedroom, I was paranoid that I was being watched, which is ironic now with our phones and how, like, what... I feel like we're being watched all the time. But now I don't care. If someone sees me naked, I'm, I'm owning it at this point. But um, yeah, so at that point, I just shut myself off once I couldn't have sex. And I, I, uh, I just lived and accepted it. So then in the meantime, my sister, I almost dropped out of college it's, it, after my first year. And my sister's like, let's get you on track. So run a marathon, 19 years old. And um, we, or maybe I wasn't even, yeah, I was 19. And we ran the Disney marathon and I peed the entire time after a certain point. And I remember just crying because like any water that I drank just went right through me. And so I'm like, not only like, what is wrong with me here? And then uh, I didn't put those two pieces together, but like if, if we go back to that first day when we were and when I was in PT school, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is why I couldn't have sex. This is why I would peed myself the whole marathon. And so when I tra- changed my major, I just I remember the guidance counselor is like, you're gonna have to stay an extra year because your classes. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Watch me. I ended up graduating early actually. And um, I had the best classes in physiology, one of being women's physiology that then exposed me to female athlete triad, which now we know as relative energy deficiency syndrome. And at that time, I understood or got to learn what the pushback on this condition was by like gynecologists and and MDs their pushback on the researchers uh, with their finding. And so these, I was learning that this birth control band-aid was holding athletes back and we were being missed. We weren't being educated when we were teenagers. I remember being so happy and when I lost my period, which completely impacts athletic performance, completely impacts like sleep quality and recovery. So all these things were just happening when I was in college and then they just hit me in that day that I was in PT school. But then that second rotation, I had to 
I did not want this, my past, to be another thing that cut me off from connecting with, an, with another person on an intimate level. So I shared with him my story, and I was like, I don't want to want this to ruin us, so I think you need to know this about me. And there just happened to be a pelvic health PT at my clinic. And she was the coolest person, I one of the coolest people I ever met. So I like loved her instantly. And she was the first person that I shared just all this shit with. Oh, sorry, my language. But it, it's okay. all this crap. And I remember just saying it for the first time. The healing of that was just, I could feel it I, at the time. And then she gave me initial steps to take to begin that healing journey. And so with Jordan, he was the first person that I was able to have pain-free intercourse with for years. And so after just talking about it, I'm like, okay, I could totally do this. So I then was like, I'm all in. Like after second rotation, I was all in because of all the the things that I knew were, that were part of my story growing up. And I was so misunderstood as an athlete. And if only people knew about this stuff, they would have been able to guide me somewhere. And I didn't feel like I was crazy in my, when I was 20, 21, 22. And so, uh, I had, I didn't have any women's health clinicals solidified. So I was like to Tracy, who was the residency director, for Women's Health Residency at WashU, what can I do to be the ideal applicant at WashU? And she's like, well, you need to take pelvic level one and then just try to get as much experience as you can. So that day forward, I, I signed up for pelvic floor one through the section. And then I uh, was, Stacy had asked who wanted to serve as a, uh, a patient for therapists that couldn't take, couldn't have the exams because they were pregnant or some other reasons for pelvic level two, two and pelvic level three. So I had flown back from Seattle three times to sit in on those classes and be the patient. And in the meantime, I had purchased books. I took Julie Weeb's first class, uh, diet, like piston science class, because I knew that was something I can implement in my practice because it didn't involve internal work. I started listening to every women's health podcast that I could find. And I started digging into research that, I mean, if I had to give, give you guys the time of, of additional education that I did in PT school, I probably would have two PT degrees. Mm. Crazy. And then I was looking at my patients, like if they were a pelvic health patient, what would I do? So I was like doing my own learning that I actually, like I couldn't implement a, a certain things because I was a student with a CI that wasn't a pelvic health therapist, but I was still learning as a student. And then I graduated. I ended up not getting the uh, residency at WashU, which ended up being a blessing because I think I needed to learn different perspectives. So that was really good. And then I didn't get the uh, one in Ohio State university i uh, didn't get that one and so i applied for a third one in tucson arizona uh, arizona and at that time uh the interview was going to be the in-person interview was going to be in august so i was my boards was when i was taking my boards was i think late july or august so i was like i'm going to just move out there live with my cousin study for my boards and see what happens so ultimately i 
was offered the residency position, but two days before my residency interview, I uh, was interviewed, I just, just was like, this is just in case, interviewed at a clinic. And this clinic was just building a new women's health program, and it was an opportunity for me to help build that. My experience in public health as a student was attractive because I had all the stuff that one would need to just delve right into it. And then I just fell in love with the manager. She was amazing. There, I had autonomy, and I'm like, recall, reflecting back on my clinical experiences. And one of the things that I didn't like about them was how poor the leadership it was in some of the clinics. And I'm like, this seems terrible. The employees are so unhappy. But the manager at my my first job was just, she was just amazing. And so I ended up taking the job, and that really forced me to, uh, it was sink or swim, you guys. And I had to do my own self-learning and collaboration with other pelvic PTs. I took all the courses again through Herman and Wallace. And uh, I just was very transparent with my patients. And like when I had, when I didn't know, I admitted it. And it ended up being such a great collaborative effort between the patient and myself and their care. And so it didn't matter that I wasn't the expert at that time. So since then, I mean, I, gosh, I, I've taken different courses like in strength and conditioning and uh, things that I would be an, can position myself as an expert in more athletic populations. And I've realized that this is not ideal this is not an, a traditional clinic is not an ideal setting to serve this population. So then I left, left a, the traditional clinic, started my business, the Vagina Doc Physical Therapy and Wellness. And I'm now, here I am still figuring it out, but uh, I feel that my grit and grind and passion for this subject material has accelerated my learning that even though I graduated in 2017, I feel very, very, confident in my skills, not because of what I took, or not because of where I went, but because of my ability to learn. And so that, I hope, wasn't too confusing, but that is my story. Okay, so there's a couple things um, that I want to kind of like unpack and, and maybe ask some more questions about. But one, I just want to say thank you for being vulnerable and kind of sharing your yes. story, because I know that that stuff can be really hard to talk about. And I've been in relationships with people where, you know, they've had issues in the past and it, it's something that can be hard when you're trying to like be intimate with somebody or to like have some, like a deeper connection, deeper relationship. Um, and it's, you know, it, there's so many things that, that I feel like we need to discuss and we need to talk about when it comes to sexual health. Um, and just like pelvic health, obviously in general, but that can be a huge, huge thing um, that can really make a difference from the mental aspect, physical aspect, anything that goes into who you are as a human being. Um, and it kind of reminds me, I don't, do you, do you watch like BuzzFeed videos? I know this is going to sound kind of random. Do you guys watch uh, BuzzFeed videos? Some. Yeah, some. I don't yeah. follow okay. BuzzFeed, but when people share them, I'll, if it's a good headline, I'll watch it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a, um, there's a like staff member for BuzzFeed. 
Her name is Merle. And she recently did a video all about like women's health and like sexual health. Um, and basically like her relationship with her vagina. And so they did a, a it's probably like a 15 minute long documentary where she went to a, like a retreat with like a sex therapist and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but one of the things that was really shocking to me was they interviewed all these doctors that work, you know, one was like a, um, an OBGYN, one was like a sexual health, um, therapist. One was some other doctor kind of in the pelvic health realm. And like all of them couldn't say the word vagina or vulva. <laughs> like it was like this like dirty word that like they, they couldn't say. And it was just really shocking that like if a medical professional can't, doesn't feel comfortable saying that word, like what kind of message does it send to our patients? Mm -hmm. And like, how does that then like make, you know, like a woman feel if it's like, does it become taboo? Does it become something that we shouldn't talk about when the reality is that it's something that should be discussed? And like when we're talking about like holistic care for an individual, we should probably be better about some of those things. Yeah. So that it kind of your, your experience or as just kind of like your path kind of reminded me of that video. And if you haven't seen it, I will totally DM you the video afterward, both of you, yeah. um, because I sent it to somebody. There's some other pelvic health therapists that I follow. And she was talking about something and I was like, Hey, have you seen this Buzzfeed video? And she's like, Oh my God, that's like, we should, that's so cool. So I feel like you guys would like the video. It yeah. Really... Send it. I don't think yeah. I've seen that one, but yeah, and I'll put it, it in like, the, in the description too. It goes part. That's kind of like what's rooted in my mission in that, at least for my podcast, pelvic health is a messy, messy mess. No, I shouldn't even say messy. It is a complex area of our health because it's not just our physical health it goes into our psychological health where well why do we view ourselves as certain ways from a body image or a uh, sexual health perspective it goes into our relationships it goes into our physiology and how we're nourishing our body and we can't just talk we have to get through the messy stuff. We have to talk about the things that people don't want to talk about. And when you as a provider, as a provider, anyone are uncomfortable, then that feeds into our the person's subconscious that it's not okay to talk about it. And that just feeds mm -hmm. into this cycle. And so this is where like chronic pelvic pain conditions and, uh, issues around that, that topic are that, that kind of behavior feeds into that cycle and just pushes people further away from health. Mm -hmm. yeah. What types of questions are you asking your patients? Say you don't know that they have some type of pelvis dysfunction or anything. Say it's a ACL patient two months out from surgery, what are you asking them to try to see if there's some type of dysfunction going on and really get to something that might be deeper than just their knee? Um, my first question, so it, it would depend on the age, but let's assume mm -hmm. it's like a 16, 15 year old. Sure. I ask if they're sexually active and I preface that with, Hey, look, I've been where you are. Uh, I know the stressors of college or, or high school and I, and, and at, high school sports, club sports, and I know what, how difficult it is a time to sexually, you're just figuring yourself out. And I tore my ACL. 
So I ask you this because I found in myself that my pelvic health, which is related to my sexual health, impacted my ACL tear and then subsequent rehab later on. That's how I preface it. I ask, are you sexually active? Number one, I ask them about their periods. Are you having regular cycles? Are you on birth control? If you are on birth control before you are on birth control, were your, your cycles regular? How are your, I ask about cramps. I ask about uh, their, uh, how, do they, how do they ever have leakage with like quick changes in directions or jumping or sprinting? And then, uh, but the prefacing those questions are su- is super important to get the actual answer. Mm-hmm. And I have to make sure parents are not there, but like do it in a way that's legal, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> kind of along the, the parents not there thing, um, how, so like, obviously your, your, your niche, your space is, is pelvic health. Mm-hmm. But like for Danielle and I that are more like kind of like that sport ortho population and we both do treat a lot of performing artists, how, you know, because I've thought about on some of the intake forms, maybe asking questions about for dancer specific stuff like or female athletes about menstruation mm-hmm. um, and like asking questions on like, you know, is your period regular? Like, are you on birth control? That type of thing, just to get a better understanding of, of like where they may be. But should should I be asking questions about like sexual activity? Should I be asking questions about like leakage and stuff like that? Should that be part of an intake for a female athlete? I, great question. Here's my advice that I give to therapists, and whether those therapists are pelvic health therapists or any other, when you ask a question, be prepared. You have to know what you're going to do with that information, mm-hmm. because I got pushback from a. Cl- providers at a different clinic within the same company. Like, I don't want to ask all these questions, but what came down to it is they didn't know how to answer it. They had only taken pelvic level one. And that was super valuable feedback because if you don't know how to respond, you're going to freak the person out. Mm-hmm. So as simple as like, you know, asking these in or formatting, if you don't know the answer, don't know how to speak on that, like when you're going through the health history, then you have to have a system or you should, or I recommend you have a system in place of how they can connect with someone that can talk, you can, you can consult with, or the patient can consult with. It's kind of like a triage system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even basic questions like, like if I, I forgot to mention that I'll ask about constipation, childhood bladder issues, mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't know what to do with that information. So, uh, to answer your question, as long as you know how to respond, like if they check the boxes or if they say, yes, I have this, then yes, I think you should ask the question. But if you don't know how to respond or how, what to do with the information, then it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so create some sort of like a, create some sort of like a flow chart of yeah. like if they answer, you know, questions to like menstrual abnormalities or like leakage or something like that, then maybe you do a little bit deeper dive into like sexual activity and whatever else. Yes. The easiest questions you can, that you can get into that, like the entrance points would be periods and bathroom habits, like mm-hmm. leakage, 
while running or constipation or childhood bedwetting or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I've always felt that, like, at least on an intake form, when they're in the mode of, like, this is a medical questionnaire, it makes it a little bit more comfortable for people. And then there's a little bit more of, even though, like, they know you're going to look at it, there's kind of like that, and I'm, and, and I'm, this is not the right and an anonymity. I was gonna say animosity, but animosity is <laughs> not the right word. Anonymity to their filling out the, the sheet, right? And then if it's something like if if you feel comfortable talking about it, you know, with the parent without the parent, you can you can start asking those questions. But I like I definitely think after having conversations with um, Megan and then like Kaylee and other people on this podcast, I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, when we go back to the service world and I'm allowed to treat people again. Um, I should probably make some sort of a dancer screening question for our female athletes or just a female athlete screening question that includes, includes stuff about like menstrual and, um, like leakage questions. So that's a great idea. And you can do a lot, like just with a few words that we're asking you these questions so that we can identify whether or not you would benefit from speaking with a specialist in this area or collaborating with the specialist because, you know, when people see your first thing, do not put urinary incontinence on an intake form and expect that people are going to check it. People don't know what that is. And they're they're we're taught like that. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I had leakage and I didn't check that because I'm like, I don't have the cotta equina and mm-hmm. people don't know what that is either. But like people don't put it. So it, it's there's an art to, to intake forms and how mm-hmm. you go about it for sure. But I think that also goes to like your clinic setup. Like if you're going to a specialist clinic that it's pelvic health clinic, but there's for, you know, the niche is female athletes. It's almost expected to be asked those kind of questions versus just like a general clinic. Mm-hmm. I would argue that you do have a aquina. It just may not have you. <laughs> um, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have, we have a, uh, oh, like a pelvic health or women's health therapist at our clinic. So I think, I think doing that and, and having more opportunities for like collaboration within the clinic space and using other people's specialties would be a great way to do that as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Cause like, I'm also like, I'm a dude that doesn't have any background in this stuff. And so when I'm working with a 14 year old dancer, like it, I've gotten better about asking about periods and like having those discussions and talking about like, you know, risks for like, um, female athlete triad type stuff. Yeah. Or relative is it? It's relative energy deficiency syndrome now. Is it uh, Reds? Yeah. I feel like Reds is a, Reds is a better acronym than Fats. It's so bad. Why is female feel, why did, fat? That's the worst. I know. Like they should have rearranged. Just feeds into it. <laughs> yeah, I have fat. Yeah, I'm concerned about being fat, and I am fat. Yeah. It's um. Wait, I don't even know what I was talking about now. All I can think about is bad acronyms. <laughs> Uh, with you, you mentioned parents and I would say my population is more 11 to 17 is the oldest I see. And a lot of the times the parents are there in the clinic with me. Sometimes they're like the hawk parents, the dance moms that are really just like videoing you with everything that you do, or they're the dads in the corner that don't give a crap what you're doing. So when you're asking these questions, do you ever run into issues with if you're asking them with the parents there or without the parents there? Because I would see the issue of kids not owning up to things if their dad was right there, which I think would be a major issue with them being honest. 
To be honest, I haven't run into that problem because of my setting and and who I treat, but there has been one instant where I I treated a colleague's daughter and uh, she was under 18. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a tricky situation. To, but I would, and this is goes back, and I hate, this is a cop-out answer, but this is why I did what I did and left the clinical setting. Like, people know exactly what they're getting into when they choose me as their provider. Mm-hmm. I've set up my, well, I'm in the process of setting up my business where the people can know exactly what they're going to get before and they expect they expect it. So I haven't run into that. And I think that was part of me dr- being driven out of my last job. Cause I was like, I can't, I need this stuff to be it, these pay, these people to have this before they even come in. So they're not freaked out mm-hmm. whenever I ask this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like it goes so deep, you know, uh, like if the parents are uncomfortable with the topics as it is, they're going to come, their response might be actually defensive and Mm -hmm. the opposite of what you would, would want both from a a relationship that you're forming with the parents, but then how the parent talks to the kids. So you're almost pushing your, it gets, it's worse. Mm -hmm. So it's tricky. And I think a lot of it has to go into the operations of the program in the clinic. That's tricky. I can't answer that. Because yeah. I haven't, I haven't had that. Yeah. Jake, right, do you have so any thoughts on that? What have on, you done with asking, with asking those types of questions? Like even if you ask sexual history or menstrual issues with the parent being uh-huh. there versus not being there. So to be honest, like I, I don't ask questions about sexual, sexual history or leakage. Uh-huh. Like I, I think I probably will start doing that. But it hasn't been something that's been at the forefront of things to discuss. I have had several conversations with um, female athletes that I work with in regards to menstruation, though. Mm-hmm. And that usually isn't the first, like, day sometimes. It ends up being, like, as we've developed, again, because I'm a 350-pound dude. And most of the girls that I'm working with are, like, 15, 16 years, years old and a third of my size. <laughs> And so I'm already like to them and their parents, I'm very physically intimidating, right? I don't have a vagina, so I don't have a period. And so like it it makes it, I think, sometimes a little bit harder, um, a little bit less accessible for me as a healthcare Mm -hmm. provider to like connect with them on on stuff. But what ends up happening is once I feel like I've created a a bond or relationship with people and especially with – you know, like there's one dancer that comes to mind. Her pain – I mean I feel like it's it's somewhat common for dancers. Like she gets – she has pain in her feet and ankles because she does a lot of point work. And so, you know, we deal with things that are, are kind of like chronic, but not to the point where they're debilitating her from doing what she likes to do. They're just kind of annoying. And with a lot of other stuff, like, you know, she's 14, 15 years old. There's a lot of like hormones fluctuating through her body. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like world war three inside yeah. of her uterus at this point. And so, there's like a lot of weird stuff that's gone on. And as we've, you know, gotten a better rapport and connection with each other, we've been able to talk about some things. And I've noticed a lot of times when, when there are weird spikes and fluctuation with her pain, with her performance, um, a lot of times it could come down to some sort of like, like relationship with menses. Mm. And so like, you know, we've, we've had conversations 
And a lot of it comes down to just like normalcy. What's your diet like? Are you able to sleep? You know, like we'll try to manage a lot of the low hanging fruit that may go into its expression. Um, but I've definitely gotten better at like having some of those conversations. But for me, I feel like it, it always comes back to like kind of like the relative energy disorder syndrome where I'm, I'm trying to avoid, you know, like amenorrhea, that stuff, and hopefully provide a positive springboard for health later on in life. Yeah. But I mean, after this conversation, I'm probably going to start asking questions about leakage. Maybe not. I'm not going to be like, hey, do you pee yourself when you're working out? Like, I feel like that would not be a very accessible way of asking that question. But I'll have it on an intake form. And if it's I'm not going to use urinary incontinence um, <laughs> because most of them aren't wearing adult diapers, so they wouldn't know what that means. Um, but I will ask more questions about that. And I think it, it should be it should provide more collaboration within our own clinic space to be able to say like, hey, this is someone who when they're doing CrossFit exercises or when they're when they're deadlifting heavy, they're having some sort of leakage um, or when they're running, they're having leakage. Hey, you should go see Amanda and talk to her and she can give you some stuff. So maybe one of our sessions, instead of seeing me and like working on our normal things, let's have you go talk with her and kind of get like a little pelvic health um, work done. Yeah. You made a good point. I, I'm, I really appreciate that you are careful in your timing of your questions because these questions don't have to be the first day. So part of this art in getting people to open up to us is reading the situation and asking, is this necessary to ask at this point in time? And oftentimes, even for me, so I still like in my contract work and my PRN work, I'm not treating just strictly pelvic health. So I, like if I see a knee valgus issue or a knee, knee, um, a knee issue, knee control, or a load transfer problem, and my traditional ortho cues are not working, then I ask, I'm like, hey, I'm gonna ask you a couple questions. I hope you're not freaked out by it, but this gives me insight on a deeper, on your deep core and a part of your core that you can't see. And you're going to be like, what? And I'm just going to say, I'll give you resources to listen when you're ready. <laughs> and then that is a good ent entrance point. And that helps therapists that don't have the answers, but they know that there's something up. And that gives you time uh, to you know, talk to your people at your clinic. But when your traditional things aren't working, that is typically, and your, your patient knows that you care that's when they'll tell you the answers that you want mm -hmm. versus, I mean, putting it in, I'm, I'm not saying don't put it on the intake form, but whatever works for your clinic, like a screening process, mm -hmm. that's fine too. But you don't have to have all the answers immediately. Sometimes you don't want to ask them yet. Yeah. But I feel like, like we kind of mentioned before, you know, just like two simple questions, like, you know, or a couple simple questions are you menstruating? Do you have a regular menstrual cycle? Do you have issues with leakage, like urinary leakage when you're exercising? Just like putting those three on a form, like buried in the deep and so other questions, probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. Yeah, I don't think so either. That good, good, good three. I think those are <laughs> solid. Gives you gives you a lot of information. And then obviously, like if we need to dive deeper into other stuff, we can you know. I feel like, and this is going to sound like a really cheesy joke, but I feel like, as is kind of traditional in, you know, in our, like, culture, um, that much like dating, 
this discussion of pelvic health should probably wait until about the third date or so, hmm. um, just to kind of build up a little bit of, of rapport mm-hmm. with For the, sure. the person you're working with. Um, so anyways, uh, th- we want to talk about a couple things. So one, I'm going to, I'm going to list them out and then we can kind of like fire them off. Um, one would be anatomy because I know in discussions with you before we started recording, you talked about how there's sometimes a lot of misnomers or misunderstandings when it comes to your own anatomy. The other two that we really would like to hit on, we've kind of talked about them a little bit, but more about menstruation, kind of going into a little bit of a deep dive with menstruation and then also like urinary leakage. Um, so I'll let you, you're the master of this domain, so to speak. So let's start with the anatomy. Uh, one of the things that we talked about before we started recording was my, I told you guys how I kind of shifting how I practice before I see people in person because, uh, people don't necessarily, they're not aware of their parts as it is. And they, so therefore communication is challenging, whether it's just commute, just basic level of understanding of what's going on in their body, but also communicating, let's say if it's a sexual problem that they're having pain with sex, they can't even communicate like what hurts sometimes where it hurts or how it hurts. So I have started to, or I'm I'm making a push that we as humans should understand what we have, just like we know that we have hands, we have forearms, we have legs, we have a knee. Well, we also have a, as females have vulvas and then vaginas, but that area is supported by a vital, vital area called the pelvic floor. And the challenge for us is we don't get to see it. Like men get to see that area develop and grow through from a young age to older. We don't. And we're not encouraged to masturbate the same way men are. Would you agree, Danielle? I would agree. I would agree. So not that I'm telling people to masturbate. (laughs) I'm not not telling you to either. That's a different (laughs) conversation. But you guys know that we have brain maps that encode the whole the story of our life, right? Just like chronic pain can uh, be, our brain can adapt like to what we, with certain things, it can really, there's a lot of brain mapping to this chronic pain experience. Our brain can shrink, this area of map, not our brain, but the map can shrink for this area of our body because we don't see it. We don't acknowledge it. So step one is understanding, you know, the difference of anatomy. So this would be the the vulva, female vulva, or which also holds part of layer one muscles. So I walk people through, okay, this these are your sexual organs, and what that means is they hold sensory fibers that can be pleasurable, but there are also muscles here that anchor part of these pleasurable organs in that if they are misbehaving for whatever reason, they can impact your sexual health or they can impact your sense of urgency to pee or need to make a change in whatever you're doing. And then deeper than that, uh, layer two, which is tested from an internal, so 
inserting a gloved finger or if you're doing it on your own, it's your choice if you're using a glove or not, that layer has the muscles that close off the urethra, the tube that urine flows through. It also has like certain anatomical structures that support muscle function above and below, but then also serve as a structural support for the organs. These, this layer is often a layer where nerves get uh, bound or can't move as well, or a lot of scar tissue develops during a vaginal delivery if someone has a tear or an episiotomy. And then even deeper than that, we have the pelvic floor, the, or the levator ani, the, the deep pelvic floor, that uh, is part of the deep core system, which is our system that basically helps drive all our physiological systems. And so understanding, like you go, let's say if you're peeing yourself or you're having pain with sex, how, I think from a control standpoint, like when you go to seek help, not even knowing about your anatomy is so disempowering, but knowing at least a little bit helps you uh, at least take in some advice and determine whether or not that advice serves you or not. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So understanding, you know, taking away the sexual component of our anatomy and just saying, acknowledging like, hey, this is a really important area because it helps support a lot of other physiologic functions as well as how we move in, in our life and in our sport. Uh, Acknowledging that component and saying, okay, sex is also a part here, but not the whole part, helps open people's minds of the importance of not just ignoring it. Oh, I don't want to go there. I was told that area is gross or that area, I'm not supposed to talk about it. Well, or you're not supposed to talk about your foot when you have pain. Um, Or let's say, I see it all the time, like when people have issues with intimacy, they don't know how to communicate with their partner. So it becomes this cycle of just like people take like the other person thinks it's their fault. And because you don't know your communications kind of like an attack rather than just like sometimes just compassionate communication. Mm-hmm. So it starts with just taking ownership of your anatomy, just like you take ownership of anything else, like your hand. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. And, and again, this kind of reminds me of the BuzzFeed video I was talking about. Not that I, I feel so weird to say that it's a BuzzFeed video, but it was a very well done documentary piece. Um, but I think it's interesting because we do live in a culture, and I feel like America more so than Europe from, I guess, what I've seen, is that we do tend to be very like taboo and you know hush hush when it comes to like talks about like genitals and sex and stuff like that, and obviously like a lot of that can come from you know some religious backgrounds and having a lot of like moral stuff that comes from like Judeo Christian values, um, but it, it's hard like it's it's just it's something that you know you think about like hundreds of years of making this somewhat taboo and making it something where people don't really want to talk about it, you know? And there's always, like, this stereotypical tropes and, like, sitcoms and stuff where it's, like, you know, the birds and the bees talk, and the dad's like, well, uh, I, we'll just wait till your mother talks to you about this. You know, you see stuff like that. 
And so, I don't know, it's just something that's so perpetuated in our society where it's just like frowned upon. Um, and then when you look at like other cultures too, like there's stuff like genital mutilation and there's, they take this whole like shaming of like sex organs and stuff to a whole different level. And it's just really sad that there's a part of our body that we don't respect like we do the other parts of our body. Yeah. It, it sounds like, it, I mean, it, when it comes down to it, I think the, uh, shame or the hush hush is comes down to lack of education and misunderstanding what all the functions of that area are. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell people this, listen very closely about what people say about other people or about a topic, because what they say oftentimes is what they're unconsciously insecure about. So if they talk, if they blow off sex, they're insecure for some reason, whether that's just like from, because they don't know what they don't know or they, or whatever. And I think that has really empowered some people as of recent. And so I've been using that as a, as a piece of advice because it's really hard to go on a journey where you don't feel like you're supported by someone else that you care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and and I, I would say that when you can start thinking about it, like not, and I, I hate to say like thinking about it clinically, but when you can just understand that it's a part of your body and you kind of take away the sexual aspect of it, um, I think it makes it more accessible to people. But I think it's also to some extent a barrier because people, it may feel weird for them to do that. And so it's just something that you're going to have to navigate and, and hopefully find common ground. Yeah. For sure. It's not easy. <laughs> it is not easy. It takes a lot of like self-reflection and being brave enough to ask why you're not comfortable asking, if you're on the clinician side, asking a question or as a patient side, having the self-awareness to understand why you're not comfortable talking or asking. So it's, like I said, it's pelvic health is a big, big mystery when it comes to changing society. I mean, it's a big challenge and I think that's why I love it so much because I love challenges. I can imagine that patients probably get emotional a lot of the times when you're working with them and breaking down some of these barriers because it's even hard to talk about and realize the impact that you could have on a woman or man's life going through some of these strategies that you use. So does that happen a lot that patients are just like overcome with emotions? Oh yeah, almost every time actually. It's either that or they don't come or they're like, I'm not ready for this. I set up, I set, I try to set the stage really early on in the way I, my framework with working with people, because I, as a, or a newer clinician, I would, it was either people were overcome with emotion or they just were too freaked out. And I needed to find a, uh, a balance point that worked for me. And, um, but it, sometimes it's almost, it was too much for me because I would take on people's emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it's, so it, it, but it, sometimes it was just so, de- I mean, oftentimes so deeply moving and satisfying to be on that journey with people. Oftentimes it's more deeply satisfying, but uh, it was, it takes time to develop that as a clinician for sure. But it, it, getting people to realize how much this component impacts 
their performance on the field or on stage. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you this, you guys. I feel like I could stand up in front of thousands and thousands of people now because I have faced and I have sifted and healed this trauma of this sexual health, this pelvic floor dysfunction component of mine. And so it's so moving to me to be able to face and seek help for that, like, and realize and see, you know, the, the products of just allowing that to come through. And I couldn't do that before. I could not do that. So when other, other people say, well, I can't believe, like I was, I had this breakthrough today with someone that I'm coaching. She was like, I used to think that this was disgusting to just clean feces out of my baby's like private areas. And now that I'm able to view it as anatomy, I can, it's just, it's something that I, I do just with a whole different perspective. And she's like, I'm going to, and we, our, our aha moment was like, oh my gosh, now I'm going to be speaking and the language that I use around my kids is going to be so different than if I had this other language. So now it doesn't even, not, it's not even only impacting her life, but it's impacting her children's lives. I think it's going to make those kids like be able to talk about that stuff and be open about it, you know, instead of like calling it like a, a baby name, like a pee pee or a hoo ha, <laughs> you know, it, you can just call it a penis or a vagina. It's like, I forget what movie is it? Kindergarten cop. It's like an old Schwarzenegger <laughs> movie where like, there's like the one kid that's like, it's a vagina or whatever. Cause like their dad's like an OBGYN or a doctor or something. Yeah. Like it's, it's always like funny, I guess. But at the same time, like, why isn't that the norm? Like, why isn't that like kids don't just call it what it is. Why do we have to have like a baby name for it? I think we're answering it right now. Mm-hmm. This is why it, it, it calling it those names just left like breaks the, t- the tension, but it also pulls away with like the root of this big question or the answer to this big question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like, we're just, we're like trying to skirt around this thing that we think is taboo, but at the same time, we're just like burying it deeper in our closet. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I it's, it reminds me, I was going to say this earlier. It reminds me of one of the things we did in, um, in grad school when we were learning about pelvic health stuff is we would just basically play the penis game with each other and just like scream like penis and vagina as loud as we could. Because I feel like when you get to the point where you're comfortable and you can just be like penis, 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 or vagina, vagina, you know, it takes like that taboo stuff away from it where it's like it's no longer you're not like saying Voldemort. It's just the word vagina. (laughs) Yeah. I can't even believe there was a point in time where like I wouldn't say poop. I wouldn't say vagina. It's crazy to me to think about where I was not (laughs) long ago. Menstruation. Menstruation. Let's talk about periods because, you know, I love talking about periods as a man. He loves Um, it. (laughs) My background, I think I told Danielle this one time, as a child growing up in a single parent home, it was just me and my dad, anytime a tampon commercial would come on, we would just either like, like look away from the TV and like, or like talk about something different. Mm -hmm. Um, It was great bonding, great bonding. Yeah. So what would you like to know about, and let's call it fertility. <clears throat> okay. I would okay. like to know, 
like when is it normal to have it begin for an athlete, an aesthetic athlete? So someone who is pressured to have low body fat, because in my world growing up, I didn't begin until I was 16, but I was told by many doctors and OBs that that was normal because I'm so lean and I'm a dancer and my activity level is so high. And I think many of my friends would speak to that same thing. And then how does that affect other aspects of your life? So bone health, psychological health, moving forward in your career where you're sustaining low body fat for so long. So that's what I would like to know. So the first question being, when is it normal to start your period? Mm -hmm. And is it normal to be 15, 16 because of your activities? I cannot answer that from a scientific perspective because I am challenged by that question. I would say everyone, when they start, when they have their first period, I think that there is probably a genetic component of that. But let's say you, how could it be normal if, I hate to use the word normal, but my argument is we should, at the end of the day, you need to be, energy in needs to meet energy energy out. So if that is what's driving late onset of menstruation, then that's a problem, right? Now. I don't know we if we know the exact answer of what drives the first period. But at the end of the day, you need to meet you need to eat enough or take in enough energy to meet what, what your body's burning. Simple just a simple answer to that. Mm-hmm. I do think women some don't aren't their fertility cycle or their first menstrual cycle it's just is going to be 15 and that's fine. 15 or 16. That's fine. If, if they're taking in what they need to be taking in and, and, and they're healthy about their sport. But I would argue that delaying that is not necessarily healthy. And here's why, how do we, how would we know Danielle? I don't know. And I think this is a great question that I'm going to pose to, uh, the, my colleague now in New York, who I interviewed on my podcast, that episode will be available next Sunday. Um, I, I never thought about it that way, but um, the problem with this whole thing, so we're getting now into uh, relative energy deficiency syndrome, which basically is you're not taking in enough quality and quantity of calories to meet what your baseline metabolic rate is and then your extra what you're burning through movement sport athletics so what happens is the body goes into survival mode and it shuts off non-essential physiology one being bone metabolism one the other being regular menstruation menstrual cycles and so that's when we talk about let your period coming, starting late and, and just your first period starting late. That could be, and I think the age, I can't remember, it might be 15 or older, like first menarche or I, f- I forget the topics or the, the, the specific words. That could be having uh, less than 12 periods per year. I, 
there's there's oligomenorrhea means few periods a year mm -hmm. and that is there's a like five around five average and then there's amenorrhea where your period completely stops for the body to preserve other systems so your brain health uh your cellular fu function, your heart health, your lung health, your kidney function. And what that looks like is, could be your uh, repeated stress fractures and typically the foot, the hip, or the shin and the foot, I would say would be the most common. And then the hip also being some, you can have them in the spine. Um, and I would say that's probably sports specific. It could be irritability and difficulty concentrating in school. So maybe your grades aren't as good or just having a really hard time concentrating in school. Could be that you feel tired all the time, even though you're getting sleep. Or it could look like your sleep sucks and you can't sleep even though you're so tired. Um, and then those are, the, I would say, the main ones, but the the, our, I think we need to recognize how incredible the human body is that a lot of people can continue to move forward and excel, and excel in their sport even in that state. Right. But the, those athletes are not going to recover. And my mantra is those that can recover faster win because they can train more. Mm-hmm. But if you keep training on tissue that's not recovering or systems that's not recovering, you're, it's going to manifest somewhere in some physiologic system. So it's a tough question. I personally can't say, and I don't think science can say, we can right, we can really follow that right now, like mm -hmm. when a, a woman is supposed to start her period. But I could tell you me, like I was an elite athlete my whole life and I, my parents both worked and they would prepare food and I would doggy bag the food and throw it in the trash, I'd put two brown paper bags and put two grocery plastic bags and I'd eat like 10 Oreos and chips and then I'd go to practice. And I still sustained, but I was so irritable all the time. I was on birth control, which was masking like anything irregularities with periods yeah. but uh i was sick all the time cough i i would get like i would be coughing like a third of the year sick my periods when i when my periods were so painful so i knew now i know like the food that i was eating if i was eat, when i eat bad or when i eat and i'm not feeding what feeding myself what i need my Oh, I have horrible cramps. I have migraines. And when I don't, when I eat well, I don't have like any symptoms at all. Yeah. And so I think that I, I, my biggest failure was where my athletic career went. And I think it's also, it's been the greatest lesson though, because I mean, I was expecting to go, go, go and be the, at the top level, but I was eating Oreos and chips. <laughs> not eating enough yeah and I don't know how many dancers do what you just said and just eat crappy food I think their issue is more just getting enough calories and I think that was my issue because everyone in my family started their period 
you know, 12, 13, which is more normal. But I, I, I was undernourishing my body as many dancers are in that pre-professional rate when they're trying to get into the companies or trying to go the collegiate route. And it's funny looking back, it's sad looking back. And I did have many stress fractures and the most common injuries in dancers are second and third metatarsal stress fractures. And whenever I see that come up in literature, they always say it's because of the number of jumps that dancers are doing, right? And the floors aren't sprung really well. But I always wonder if it's more a menstrual issue and a caloric intake reds type of, you know, issue than truly just the loading that they're doing, right? If they were eating the right amount of calories, would that be the most prevalent injury in ballerinas specifically? So I'm always curious. Yeah, I whenever I was describing reds, I didn't mention like eating disorder. Mm. That used to be a, a requirement for that diagnosis, like anorexia, bulimia. But now, like disordered eating is just yeah. conscious or subconscious restrictive intake. And sometimes, how do you know? You know, you don't know. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I remember my CE2, my second clinical rotation, I was treating a college female who had post foot. And even then I'm like, this, this is not fitting our movement, our movement patterns. Like what we know Mm -hmm. about rehab that way. It's not that I think there's something deeper. And if you look in the methods, like in the research, I don't see that they are doing the workup to know. I mean, they do screen like, but how, I don't think it's enough. I think it's hard to screen this. It's hard to, mm-hmm. hard to treat from all professional like disciplines. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm with you. I don't think it's necessarily just strictly like the loading and the surface. I do think it is this something in this, uh, this, this world of reds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting now. I, I'm, I'm really interested in this topic with postpartum women and people with pain problems that don't resolve with my typical, with typical PT intervention. So an example, like a female that would have hip pain or shoulder pain or neck pain and we are correcting or helping the movement patterns. We're addressing, uh, we're t- addressing tissue healing, and we're 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 hitting, we're covering our grounds there. But then they still have the pain problem. But it doesn't follow like a typical nerve pattern. It doesn't tip. It's, and I've found that these people are not taking. They have some sort of behavior that is causing that is driving them to do too much or not do enough or uh that is holding that that is bigger than what i do and that oftentimes is body image is driving mom wants to lose the baby weight so she exercises all the time but she's not meeting the demands the metabolic demands that a postpartum woman from a healing perspective need she's in fact eating less than like double what she should. She's eating like not even, it's crazy. And so I am, I'm again, I'm changing my practice and how I approach these things because they're so easily missed and I can be feeding into a underlying problem. As far as like screening for this stuff in a clinical setting, 
obviously we've talked about questions on the intake form, but what like are there signs that we should be looking at from from our patients that, that tip us off that this might be going on? This is a great question, and it's a question that I am asking myself right now as I go into as I reflect on my process on day one. And um, I think my winning question that isn't a direct question about eating is why do you wanna do what you wanna do? If it's, if they tell me, like I wanna know why do you wanna go back to running? This is an easy one. I wanna lose the baby weight. If their answer is weight-centric, or let's say if it's a gymnast, well, I want to, my, I, I need to look a certain way. Right. To be able to get increased height in the air, I need less yeah. body weight so I can get off the ground. Yeah. Right. Those are your, your yellow flags that should be blinking off in your head. You're not going to go off that right away, but this is, then I do my physical exam. I just put that in my like filing cabinet in my brain. And I do my physical exam. I determine if there's a, a pattern. And then I, when I'm going over like the plan with the patient, I'm like, here is what I can help you with. And I relate that to my exam. And I'm like, here's what could be barriers for you reaching this point. And then I go into, uh, I am, while I'm good, I'm not better than these aspects. And that's like, I'm not, I, you need to put your body in the, uh, a position to recover. So that's where I go into the de- the eating. Then I go into like the deeper stuff. Like I can't, um, if you're not getting support from, from the people that you're, you're spending your time with and you feel guilt and you don't have, you're not making time for this and I can't, that's not on me. That's on you. We got to figure that out. So that's how I approach it. I don't say, how's your relationship with food until probably visit four. Okay. And that's where I uh, sometimes have to be like, but they know I'm sassy by then, so I get away with it. <laughs> <gasps> yeah. I was going to say, I've been asking more about eating patterns recently because I've been dealing with a couple dancers after labral repairs and their rehab is so long and their tissue healing should be done, but they're still having a lot of pain. And then when I go to ask those questions about caloric intake, you know, dancers are notorious for tracking their calories and they're all eating 1200 to 1400 calories. And it's just mind blowing. It's like, where do you get this information from? that says you need 1200 calories, especially when you had this huge surgery and we're working out five times a week. And I know you're taking dance classes and probably doing jumping jacks in your room to try to burn off extra calories. So I'm not sure where they're getting this information from, but it it kills me as a dancer and a therapist to know that that is still going on. Well, listen and let it kill you because you're gonna come up with a solution of how you can really reach these people because it's going to continue to bother you because it's going to impact your rehab, Mm -hmm. like your success. And, uh, it's tough. It's such, it, it really undermines our profession, right? 
but I think we spend so much time with our patients that we can pick up on this stuff faster than anyone else. Mm. And we can serve as that person that they feel safe with that then you can guide them into the right direction. So now I work with a specific dietitian who I really admire her approach because it's a gentle approach and it's it doesn't feed into these like calorie counting behaviors and she takes a really healing approach because it's a lot deeper than what we know and what they know consciously. Now, Jocelyn, have you worked with any performing artists or dancers like in the pelvic health sphere? What's that been like for you? Oh, the, my performance artists are the probably one of the most challenging population because they have such deeply rooted behaviors out of passion for their sport, right? So uh, I, main main ones are like a lot of times prolapse symptoms or pelvic pain mm. have been or hip pain or all of them. And so I... I mean, I feel like every month I evolve, I take huge leaps in my clinical practice because what I understand about human beings and behaviors, not because of just what I'm doing. Um, and I honestly miss this. I miss this piece whenever I worked with them. But now, and as I reflect back, if I could do anything different, I would have a better conversation around what they're doing with exercise and how that, because they they want to know, am I allowed to do this or am I supposed to just do my rehab exercises? And I gave them the freedom to incorporate like their rehab in their dance. However, I missed that, oh, well, that's just going to encourage them to work out more. Well, we really need to get down to the root of this. Like if they're having pain as their problem, well, they're, they might be starving of an essential nutrient or whatever that is potentially connected into that neural neural nerve symptom that they're focused on, you know? But they are, performance artists are almost the most challenging because of these deep-rooted behaviors. Hmm. Pelvic health, no difference, other than that they typically have an overactive pelvic floor, overactive abdominal wall. They don't know how to relax their abdomen. And uh, so that part of me is just teaching them it's okay to let their belly hang. Mm. And it's teaching them, I think it's super fun to work with performance art, performing artists because they're very in tune to their bodies. So I can teach them things quickly. However, I need to quickly take them out of their bodies. After we break patterns, like get out of the posterior pelvic tilt with this strategy and let's just like find middle ground here so your hip stabilizers can work because mm. tilting with your pelvis with your all your glutes it's going to be hard to use the, uh, the the glutes for single leg stability or something else so teaching them how to stabilize differently and letting go components of things that they don't need to be, need to be holding on to has been a huge breakthrough with me and i almost like i i fancied the idea of of getting into that niche and um, learning myself of how to do some of the movements so I could teach them, mm. them better. Like uh, like aerial silks and cir- circus. 
think it's yeah. super fun, but I'll speak on dance specifically again. When dancers go through their training, they're told to pull in their stomach a lot, right? And they do the posterior pelvic tilt a lot because you want the straight line of your body to make it look long and you don't want any edges sticking out in places that they shouldn't be, um, including your butt, right? So you're going to tuck everything under and pull everything down together, but also like lift up and push down, right? There's a thousand cues that they get, but pulling in your stomach is one that you get because you're supposed to look so lean with dance. And I, I remember almost like holding my breath when I was learning new skills. Cause you're just like gasping everything you can together in hopes that it stabilizes you. And can you speak to what kind of issues might come down the line from that type of just like suctioning in of everything that you have? Yeah, absolutely. So the constant pulling inward with the abdominal wall and, and then being very uh, structurally erect with active strategies and then tucking the tailbone under increases internal body pressures. And if the abdominals are more dominant and the direction of force is down, then prolapse could be a problem. Mm. So speaking for myself, I mean, just think you, or, or before I go on to me, our body only has so much space and it's going to take the path of least resistance, okay, to relieve the pressure. So for me, I've always been lean, minus the freshman 30 I got <laughs> but even then I was lean um and I have no I was so didn't know how to let go of my abdominal wall this is this was like my whole life always contracting my abdomen and no awareness of my pelvic floor so uh I feel like I was always just it was a small container and I was always holding my breath and contracting my abs that my path of least resistance was my vaginal tissue so Danielle, speaking to uh, relative flexibility, relative stiffness, Jake, the relative stiffity, we're taught everything at WashU is based on this principle of relative stiffness, relative flexibility. The, the tissues that are relatively uh, more flexible are those that are going to move, okay? Mm -hmm. So with the vagina and the vaginal walls and the pelvic floor tissues, regardless if what we're comparing is with me, my vaginal tissues, vaginal walls were more flexible and gave. So I was having a lot of pressure, a lot of heaviness because simply I was just creating this just suction in my belly, pushing everything down, not even knowing it. And so that's what a lot of dancers do. Mm -hmm. And we're so out of tune with our pelvic floor that it's, we're not going to be pushing our belly out. So things are going to be pushing down just by law of gravity and just lack of understanding how that area works. So I see most often is a muscle overactivity and subsequent, well, I hate to say prolapse, but like different vaginal wall uh, impairments because of that. Mm -hmm. Are they reversible? Does, I mean, they are very, very treatable, I should say that. But we, my first go is, is uh, 
changing that component or at least balancing it out. Like I know you have to do it for your sport, but let's relax during the day or let your belly go during the day. Let your shoulders go during the day. Sometimes their pelvic floor needs addressed from a muscle performance standpoint, but I rarely work on isolated kegels unless it's a postpartum underactive problem. So do you see like with that, like spasticity, do you see a lot of like leakage issues or is it more what you're describing as kind of like a prolapse or type thing? Good question. I don't like to use the word spasticity, but, um, with, yeah, absolutely. I see leakage and that could be more related to the, to a cystocele problem. Sometimes, I mean, it could be for so many different reasons. It could be an overactivity in some of the uh, muscles like around the the like layer two and that they're not fully emptying their bladder. And then if their layer two muscles are on, they get stretched, they can like leak their dribble there. Or sometimes I see that um, like an urgent continence situation that their pelvic floor muscles are miscommunicating with their bladder muscle, the detrusor. And so they get an urge, sudden urge to pee for whatever reason, their detrusor muscle contracts, pressure drives is driven up uh, from the pelvic inlet or the bladder inlet. That pressure is higher than the pressure outlet outlet where the urethra is for whatever reason, whether that's from, you know, constant straining or whatever, and they leak that way. Or it could be hormonal, often hormonal, and the hormone and the and the autonomic nervous system affecting like it's a the part part of the urethral complex the euro the uh, I I forget all the lingo but <laughs> the autonomic smooth muscle portion of the um, urethra. You could say any words and we would believe you honestly. Those are science words. <laughs> I could be off, but those are what I, I, I wish I had a more simple answer, but there, that's the thing with saying urinary incontinence. And that's the thing I loved about Wash U is like urinary incontinence is not a helpful diagnosis. It's a symptom. And so what's the problem? Is it a motor, is it a movement pattern coordination impairment? Is, Is it a force production deficit or is it a, uh, uh, what is it? Shortened pelvic floor problem? Is it a uh, what is perineal tissue impairment, <laughs> nerve tissue impairment? Like that tells me something. I could people could leak for they're not absorbing their food or their the water. Like what happened to me when I was in the marathon? That was not necessarily a primary pelvic floor problem. Danielle, did you see like when you were? in college and doing your dance major, did you notice or like reflecting back, did you, were there people that had any sort of um, like pelvic floor dysfunction or like urinary leakage or anything like that? I know we've talked about like from a fertility menstruation standpoint, that obviously there were a lot of people that, that didn't have their periods regularly, but did you notice any sort of like urinary leakage? Um, if it happened, no one that I knew owned up to it. I'm sure it's there, especially in ballet when you're in leotards, you would think that you would see it, right? Like you're lifting your leg up really high in the air. So like everything is exposed, but no one that I knew 
dealt with that. It was all just infertility and menstruation issues. Yeah. yeah. It's often, it's, it, they're pelvic, people, ballet dancers, I would argue, are likely more tight or stiff mm. and less likely to have leakage, more likely to have issues with fully emptying their bladder. And if they're going to have an issue and they're not, they've never had children, I would guess that it's an urge problem, which we then get into this fertility conversation, hormone conversation, uh, food conversation. And sometimes it's the movement and pattern. Like sometimes it's the, the thoracolumbar junction control where the nerves kind of cross. Sometimes it's a... Uh, pelvic floor spasm because of a labral issue and therefore guarding. Mm -hmm. It's so complex. And that's why we need a really interdisciplinary approach. And I think PTs should be the one, like the leader on this, but those PTs need to know when to triage, like, okay, when do we need to talk to this person? When do we need to talk to this person? Like as the primary care in that standpoint, primary mm -hmm. care role. So I guess this is kind of just a, it's, it's going to seem kind of random, I guess, but like moving forward as a PT profession, like, should there be a, um, I mean, I've had this conversation with other people that like every, everybody that has a, a child should be given a referral to PT for public health stuff. Like, I think that that should be just standard part of like, you had a baby, here's a referral. You should at least have a consult with somebody in the public health field. But what about like other surgeries? Like this, should this be something like, you know, five, 10 years down the road, should we see, Hey, you had an ACL surgery. Uh, here's a script for PT, but here's all, here's another script to have a consult with a public health therapist. Like, is that something that we should do? Another question that I've been really reflecting on, because I think that we as PTs can also push people backwards as well. Like we don't, while this is really great, like what we do is really important and and can really help, it can set people backwards. Like, for example, not everyone that has a muscle injury from uh, like a muscle strain standpoint needs to see a physical therapist. They can see someone else or if they have the knowledge, they could do their own thing. Now, I think it's important that we capture them from an education perspective in that if you have this, this, and this, these are the professionals that are available to ha for help. Mm -hmm. um, and as your question, to, to your question of other surgeries, um, I say it's over and over again that I'm so happy that I am not a surgeon because I would deny too many people surgery because of all of the legwork that goes into being an optimal surgical candidate. So it would never make money. <laughs> but uh, I think that education on how to recover the best, like put yourself in a, an environment that you're gonna, going to recover the best is what we give to people because those people have to make their own decision on, based on the information that they have, they have to make their own decision on if that's a right course of action for them. Like, 
I go back into this, like I would have never listened. I was not ready to get help until I got my help. So all that time would have been wasted. I would have, who knows if I would have ever been open to receiving services because it turned me off because it was introduced to me at the wrong time. And even now as a pelvic health, I think I, I think I'm a fantastic provider because not because of my skills, but because I can understand and recognize where people are and meet them where they are. New moms, while I want to help them, they have to be ready because what I do, what I provide could actually create this, they feel more of this like guilt, like I, I can't even take care of myself or I, I can't make time, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to be really, as we reflect on this question, I think yes, in part, we should be someone that, we sh- our services should be something that every postpartum woman should consider. And every surgical candidate should have access to resources that they can learn and make decisions following that. But if we put it in, if we give it in in such a way that it's at the wrong time or the wrong way, it could do more harm than good. Understandable. I'm I'm down. I vibe with that. And I and I'm someone that I'm like everyone needs public health. I don't think everyone needs or, or everyone needs to see a public floor therapist. I don't think everyone needs to see a public floor therapist. I think people. I would like people to be open about the education that we can provide, so that they can make informed decisions on whether or not they're ready to to see someone. And I think that's a. I think. I think. In my brain, what you have said is what I meant to say. I just wasn't expressing that the best. I think it should be like everyone that has a child should have access to Hmm. pelvic floor education and therapy, you know, as needed. Obviously, like we shouldn't force people into like these services, but I think that there should be the opportunity like, hey, if this is something that you feel like you need or explore, recommend that you at least have a consultation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you that guys type. see most success with patients that come in and they're like, they come in at their own will rather than my doctor made me do this before I could get an MRI. I just want to smack that person and say, get out of here. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the people that come in and say, I'm only here because I have to have PT before I get my MRI and surgery, like they're, they've already set themselves up for failure because yeah. they don't believe that yeah. it's going to do so. I thank those people because they drove me out of my last job. Because <laughs> if someone tells me that now, I'm like, okay, bye. I go see someone else. <laughs> I'm not in for that because that's total like waste of resources and both of our times. Mm-hmm. So Jocelyn, I got I got to say, though my bladder is not leaking, my brain is leaking <laughs> um, from just the amount of like pelvic floor talk that that we've had today yeah um danielle let's do some rapid fire questions what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you have ever made so it can be anything like money time energy anything that you've done that has really helped you out and there's so many but i would probably say uh i a business coach because i mean Mm -hmm. i wouldn't have gotten anywhere without a coach in sports 
or really anything else. So why would that be any different for business? So big mm -hmm. investment. Yeah, I'm going to be probably in debt till I die. But that's no different than where I was before with yeah. my student loans. We went to Wash U, so I think yeah. that's a lifelong journey. <laughs> yes. I, I feel you guys. I also went to a private institution and did three grad programs. So I have a townhouse that I'll never see, and it makes me sad. Um, all right, here's, here's mine. What is your favorite Arizonan food? Tacos, for sure. You're not going to say tamales? Oh, my gosh. No. Although I, a patient made me tamales, and they were really good, but I am such a taco fanatic. Mm. I don't know if that's an Arizona native thing, but that's just my thing. Yeah. I also, I went to school at the University of Arizona, so in Tucson, and the food down there is so great. I, I love it. I hear that. I hear it's a lot better than in Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> What about, like, this is something that I've seen on the interwebs. What about a Sonoran hot dog? Is that a thing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really seek out hot dogs, so it could be a thing, but I wouldn't know. Okay. Danielle, have you ever had a Sonoran hot dog? I've not had one, but I've heard it come up a lot. And I'm, oh, it's a Tucson thing. Huh. Yeah, no, I've never had one, but. Well, that's why I asked, like. It's a Arizona. I'm gonna. I don't even know what's on it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna just Google this for the sake of discussion here. I'm also um, not a hot dog person. Talking about. It's a hot dog. Body. It's so it's a hot dog wrapped in bacon and served on a. I don't even know how to say this word. Bolillo style hot dog bun topped with pinto beans, onions, tomatoes, and a variety of additional condiments, often including mayonnaise, mustard, and jalapeno salsa. Wow. So no, that's that's like you guys. Neither of you have had a Sonoran hot dog. No. No. I haven't met anyone from Arizona that has had a hot dog yet. Like I, I've never been to Arizona, so it'll be on my list of, of things. It's beautiful. Um, I miss it. It's an awesome state. I mean, yeah. it, it's tough in the public health world, but because of some of the conservative roots. Mm. But. I was going to say the other thing I find interesting about Arizona, because my college roommate was from Arizona. He, he also was from Tucson. And then after the University of Virginia, he did another bachelor's degree at the U of A as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, you guys just don't – you completely disregard daylight savings time. I know. Like, I, don't like, know I, I don't know else why. Follows it. Everyone think, else follows it. But Arizona is just like, nah. I think Arizona is the smart person in that decision because I still get confused every year. So I think Arizona is just ahead of the curve. Like, it's already confusing as it is, but then I feel like if you're not in Arizona and you're trying to talk to somebody that's in Arizona, it's like, are they two hours behind? Are they three hours behind? Like, mm -hmm. what part of the year is it? Are they only one hour behind? Like, I just don't know what time zone Arizona is in. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> it's already confusing as it is. <laughs> Jocelyn, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show today. If anyone listening wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way that they can do that? I think the best, well, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. And I hope I wasn't like too harsh with just all topics, public health. Um, I am most, most accessible through Instagram and you can mm -hmm. find me at the dot vagina doc. Is it, uh, was the period on purpose or is that like a, like an ode to the fertility thing? Um, <laughs> 
It was because it was the one that was available. The, the, the vagina okay. doc was taken, and it wasn't oh. even an ac active username, which was so frustrating. Oh. I'd like to think that the period was on purpose. Yeah, I'm that's gonna, pretty um, clever. Now that you very... said that, I'm going to start reflecting on that. Yeah, so you should you. totally own it. I think it's like a subconscious just like like thing on like fertility and, and pelvic health. Yeah. Just Just subtly sliding it in there. Yeah. Um, Danielle, if people wanted to get in touch with you, how can they find you? My Instagram handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle A Nice underscore DPT. And I know, Danielle, I know I say this all the time, but you need to hear it. You are a nice PT. I appreciate that. Don't let anyone tell you differently. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and and then if you guys want to reach me, you can find me at TMD underscore the movement docs um, for medium quality rehab based memes. Um, <laughs> thank you again for tuning in this week where we spoke with Dr. Jocelyn Connolly, a.k.a. the vagina doc. If you guys have any questions, comments, concerns or have a topic that you'd like to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, as always, don't break a leg. <laughs>